to the Cold Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on technology, cryptography, and whatever else is on my mind recently. So, in this episode, I'd like to talk a bit about the foundations of cryptography. In particular, I'd like to sort of think about a simple question, which is what does it mean for something to be secure? You know, people say that a specific encryption scheme isn't yeah, secure, or that a signature scheme is, is secure. Maybe they even say a, something smaller, like a block cipher is secure. And or sometimes people talk about an entire application. They say, you know, Signal, the, the messaging app, is secure. And so what do people mean when they say this? And to what extent can you prove that things are secure in cryptography? That's sort of the question I want to talk about today. So the first thing when it comes to security is that as the person trying to create a secure system, you're at somewhat of a disadvantage. And the reason for that is you need to find a way to cover all the possible attacks that people might do against your system. All the ways a malicious uh, attacker would find to get an edge against you or break something or violate some assumption you've made. You need to cover against all of those, and yet all an attacker needs is one attack. They just need to find one way to break the system, and then that's enough for an attack. So in some sense, if you want to create a system that's you know perfectly secure, you have to defend against the creativity of all possible attackers. You have to see all possible venues of attack in advance. And so you're at a sort of exponential disadvantage because there's many more ways to attack the system that you've never even thought of uh, than, you know, than you'll be able to think of on your own. So it's, it's quite a difficult position to start with. So that's why to, to begin, you have to first kind of restrain the adversary somewhat. Because if you consider that the adversary is sort of all-powerful and can do anything, it's, it's really impossible to create any secure system. For example, let's say the adversary is yourself. You know, it's impossible to, like, keep a secret from yourself, right? If the adversary is, like, right next to you at each moment and sees uh, exactly what keys on your keyboard you press and, and sees exactly what you see through your own eyes, I mean you won't be able to keep anything secret from them. So you have to have some kind of restriction on what the adversary can do. For example, if the adversary controls every computer in the world, uh, you can't really do much uh, computer security either because everything's compromised to begin with. So usually, this is just for security in general, not just cryptography, you have to consider a threat model. So you have to sort of model in some sense, or at least think about what the adversary can do, and really more importantly, what they can't do. So 
usually you assume that there's sort of a few vectors to influence a system, but then beyond that, uh, the adversary can't can't do anything. So you have what the adversary can do, and then sort of related to that is what does the adversary want to accomplish? If I have an encryption scheme, maybe they want to figure out what messages I'm sending. If I have a signature scheme, maybe the adversary wants to forge signatures. Um, if I have, you know, some kind of authentication system, which I guess is similar to signatures, the adversary wants to be able to authenticate even though they're not an authorized user. Or maybe they want to be able to run arbitrary code on their mobile phone despite it being locked down. Or maybe they want to remove, you know, DRM protections from your uh, media streaming site or whatever. So sort of in, at a very high level, you have a combination of assumptions about what the adversary can do, that's your threat model, and then also some goals uh, that the adversary wants to accomplish. I don't know if there's like a succinct uh, term for this one, like threat model. <laughs> Let's just call these, uh, you know, attacker goals or whatever. And so in cryptography, you know, one sort of popular way to encapsulate these two concerns is with a game. So I think I've I mentioned games a couple episodes back, but I guess I'll over them from scratch today but basically the game tries to capture both of these things it tries to capture what the adversary can do against uh, you know the system and also what the adversary wants to accomplish so the the high level idea is that the game lets the adversary interact with the system in a certain way and the adversary tries to win this game by you know accomplishing some kind of goal and so Going back to our examples, you know, maybe for encryption, the adversary can sort of uh, see encrypted messages to try, and their goal is to try and learn what was encrypted, you know, something along those lines. So a bit more formally, I mean, there, there are different ways to define what a game is. That's one interesting thing about cryptography is that there's not, there's sort of some settlement in terms of how the foundation should work approximately. But in terms of the actual details, uh, people usually have you know slight variations on these. Um, in the formulation I like, the way it works is that a game is sort of a set of functions that an adversary can call. So an adversary can call you know function A, function B, function C, etc. And the goal of the adversary is to distinguish between two different versions of a game. So for example, with encryption, the, the one common way of setting up an encryption is that you say, you know, the adversary has a function which lets them, which allows them, which it receives a, a message as input from the adversary and then gives them a ciphertext. And the adversary's goal is to tell whether or not the ciphertext came from encrypting the message or from encrypting a random unrelated message. And so these are sort of the two versions of this game, and the adversary tries to distinguish between them. So this is what we call the indistinguishability game. And at, at the very basic level of the game, the only thing you can do is just one time send a message to this function, or, or call is also another term we use here. 
And you can also add other functions to this game. So with encryption, uh, one common function is, well, first of all, you can allow multiple queries to this function. So rather than just a single message and receiving a ciphertext, you can do this multiple times. And that, that can help you uh, by seeing multiple messages that can sort of help you uh, figure out which game you're in. Another thing that might help you is that you can encrypt a message of your choice and know that you're going to get it back. So unlike the challenge function, where like you either receive a message or the encryption of your message or the encryption of a random message, depending on which version of the game you're playing, uh, the second function would just encrypt whatever message you gave it. And so the idea is that like by requiring this additional function, you force encryption to be randomized. Because otherwise, what you could do is I'd ask the second function to encrypt a message, and then I'd be able to recognize that ciphertext in the challenge. Because when I encrypt a message in the challenge, it's going to match if encryption is deterministic. Otherwise, it's going to be you know random and unrelated. So if encryption, on the other hand, is randomized, you can sort of make this game unbeatable because every time I encrypt a message, I get a sort of new ciphertext, even if it's the same message. So that's sort of an example of a game. I mean, there's a lot of sort of nuance here, and I guess I'll touch upon... Well, I guess, I guess one thing I should, I should touch upon immediately is that it can be quite tricky to capture the exact security properties you need as a game. So for example, I, I, I explained this indistinguishability game, but I, I think it's probably not clear to someone hearing about it for the first time that it's sort of the correct notion of security for uh, encryption. It's, 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 a, it's a quite strong notion. In fact, there are even, even stronger notions that you probably want in practice, like you can't even sort of tamper with ciphertext. So you want some kind of like authenticated encryption. And it's usually like what we end up using in practice. So like there's a lot of nuances on how you can define a game. And it's also sort of not clear what security properties you get given a specific game. Like you could suddenly define the game in a different way and then suddenly it would be like trivially winnable. So often it's actually, it's not necessarily straightforward to go from like some security properties I want my system to satisfy and a threat model to a game which captures the, those things it's it can be quite tricky it gets even more tricky once you get into sort of cryptographic protocols and like the adversary can interact with multiple people people in the real world system when you want to model like some limited forms of leakages so like i mentioned signal the messaging app uh earlier this episode and with signal you have this somewhat intricate protocol for sending and receiving messages and it tries to defend against some advanced forms of attacks where even if some secret information is leaked at some point in time you can still recover from that or it doesn't compromise messages that were you know behind that leakage point so like maybe all messages from that leakage point onwards are compromised but everything before that point is still okay and so trying to model this as a game is very subtle because you need to sort of model a situation where the adversary can sort of you know, ask for some secret information and get it, but then once they ask for it, they're not allowed to do certain other things in the game, otherwise it's trivially rentable. So if you look at like the papers that, uh, you know, analyze these messaging protocols or try to, in, you know, develop enhancements and improvements to them, the games they use to define things are, are quite 
quite complicated. You know, the adversary has many ways to interact with the system. Uh, they can play the role of different parties. Uh, it's so getting confidence that you're, you know, modeling everything completely is quite difficult. And if you fail to model the real world with your game, then that's a problem. I think I'll, I'll talk about that later in this episode. Looks like I'll have the time for that. But you know, one important thing naturally with all the security modeling stuff is that uh, things will go wrong if you, if you mess up with your modeling. And there are many ways things can go wrong. But to, to go back to sort of the foundational stuff. So here we have the notion of a game. And I mentioned that the goal of the adversary is to distinguish between two versions of a game. And given that idea, what does it mean for a system to be secure under this game notion of security? Well, what it means in essence is that no adversary can win the game by distinguishing the two versions. And in cryptography, we usually caveat no adversary in two ways. So first of all, we assume that the adversary is what we call efficient. Uh, technically, this means that they run in polynomial time for some security parameter. And this basically means that the, the, there's a bound on how much computation the adversary can do. And this is an important assumption because otherwise, if you take say, an encryption scheme, well, the adversary could like brute force all the keys. Now, there's an exponential number of keys in the security parameter. So if the security parameter is 128 bits, there's like two to the 128 keys. So that's too many to brute force in polynomial time. So if you have that bound on what the adversary can do, then they can't do things like brute forcing. And so that's an important caveat. So usually we say no efficient adversary can break the system for it to be considered secure. Then also, we allow the adversary to break the system with a small probability. So usually we say the probability is, has, can be negligible in the security parameter. Uh, you can essentially take this to mean it can be sort of one over the expo an exponential function. So one over two to the security parameter would work. So if there's a probability one over two to the 128 uh, of winning, then that's fine. And so that's, it's sort of analogous to brute forcing the key. So instead of you know actually trying to brute force the key, I could just guess the key not do a lot of work because I'm lazy, and I'd have like a small probability of winning. But it's it's not enough to be considered reasonable to worry about. And also like if 120 bits of security, it's it's a ginormous number. Like something that occurs once every two to the 128 tries, it, it's 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 never gonna happen. Not in this universe, not in like a billion billion universes, you know, if every atom the universe were dedicated to computing <laughs> to breaking this thing it wouldn't work like it's it's absolutely astronomical it, it's beyond astronomical even you know but then sort of breaks the question so i need to prove that no adversary can break the game but i'm sort of back to the conundrum you know we started the episode with which is how do i know you know i have a sort of a a finite number of ways I can make choices in designing the system, but how do I know like all the possible strategies an adversary might have? Like maybe there's a very clever adversary who sees through like the components of my system and figures out exactly the way to break it. Like how do I prove that, you know, no matter how clever the adversary is, they can't break it. 
You know, how do you, how do you do this? And the answer <laughs> cryptographers came up with is you can't, so we're going to cheat. <laughs> how are we going to cheat? Well, we assume that there are some problems which can't be broken. And instead of saying my big system, you know, I prove that no adversary can break my big system. I instead prove something much simpler, which is, well, if you can break my big system, then you must be able to break this small problem. And by assumption, the small problem is unbreakable. So my system must be secure because the reasoning there is that, you know, if my system were somehow not secure, despite the small problem being break unbreakable, since I can use a breakage of the big system to break the small system, this is not, you know, it's there's a contradiction here. If I can, I can turn any break into the big system into a break into the small system. So if I assume the small system is secure, then, you know, by, you know, logical, you know, deduction, the big system is secure too. And so cryptography, at least I say modern cryptography, where you start to introduce, you know, computational assumptions and, and stuff like that. It's sort of the art of, you know, finding some reasonable assumptions you can make and then trying to big, you know, trying to use this minimal kernel to build out a big system. And you can actually do some pretty impressive stuff with very few assumptions. You can do a quite a lot of cryptography. You don't need that much, you know, you know, the analogy I like here is that it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, crystallization. So for, some, for many things, for something to crystallize, you need sort of like a nucleation point. You need a point it can sort of attach to and then start to, you know, build up structure from that point. And I think security and cryptography is a lot like this. Without an assumption, a nucleation point you can use to start to crystallize your system, you're stuck. You, you can't, it's very difficult out of the blue to have a system where you can prove that no adversary can break it. There, there's some systems which are trivial. For example, if there's, no if there's no difference between the two games, you know that obviously an adversary can't distinguish them. So that's simple. So there are some things where you can create a row form system out of the blue. But for most of the interesting things, you need a, an anchor point. You need some kind of starting point to sink your teeth into and then expand from there. And given just a small, you know, seedling of a crystal, you can create a very nice and elegant system atop of that. But you do need some assumptions. So what kind of assumptions are there? Well, I like to think of them as, as sort of being divided into two main kinds of assumptions. What I'll call, I guess, the symmetric uh, assumptions because they're used in symmetric cryptography. But I guess perhaps a better name would be synthetic assumptions. I like that one. I like that name. Like I just came up with that one. But And then the other one, other kind of uh, assumption is algebraic assumptions. So I guess that's sort of the algebraic assumptions. These are usually simpler. So here's an example of an algebraic assumption. Given the product of two prime numbers, let's say represented as a you know, bit string, and the two prime numbers being large, say thousands of bits each, it's difficult to factor this number and retrieve the, the two primes. 
that's an assumption. This is the assumption which, in some sense, underlies RSA, in that if you were to be able to factor numbers, you would break RSA completely. Another assumption is that, uh, you know, given a suitable, suitable elliptic curve, and you have a designated point as the generator of the curve, it's difficult, if I just give you a point, to figure out how many times you need to add the generator to itself to reach that point. So this is the discrete logarithm assumption. And there are also, you know, things based on lattices, isogenies of elliptic curves. So you have a lot of sort of algebraic assumptions about about different mathematical objects. And so often with algebraic assumptions, you have a very rich sort of interconnection between the assumptions. So with the discrete logarithm, you have, you have subtle variations, uh, each sort of stronger than the last. Sometimes you can prove that different algebraic assumptions are equivalent to each other. For example, with lattices, there, there are a lot of complicated equivalences between different problems you might, you might come up with for, for lattices. With, with RSA and with RSA, you also have this kind of circularity between like different kinds of factoring. So RSA itself doesn't like use the hardness of factoring directly, but instead uses sort of uh, the hardness of finding sort of this inverse exponent thingy. But you can sort of prove that it's kind of equivalent. And then there are some assumptions which are actually sort of related, but not actually like technically reducible. For example, in RSA, there's, there's this assumption which essentially says that RSA encryption is secure. And there's no known way to reduce this directly to factoring. It's a very similar problem. It basically says, uh, if I have an exponent E, let's say, you know, prime number, like, you know, three or six, 65,537 or something. Uh, if I have this RSA modulus N, the product of two large primes, it's, it's difficult to go from x to the e mod n back to x. So it's, that's essentially the RSA assumption. And this is what underlies RSA encryption. And if you can factor n, this is easy. Uh, but there's no proof that I know of that if you can solve this problem of going from x to the e mod n backwards to x, then you can factor n. And so, in essence, you sort of need to make this, this different assumption which is related to factoring, but sort of not entirely equivalent. So there are many situations like this. With a discrete logarithm, you also have like, you have the discrete logarithm, then you have the Diffie-Hellman assumptions, you have the computational Diffie-Hellman, then the decisional Diffie-Hellman assumptions. So you have, so you often have this sort of hierarchy of slightly stronger assumptions, which are sort of related to a hard problem, but technically not reducible to that problem. And then that's the algebraic assumptions in a nutshell. And then you have the synthetic assumptions. And I call them synthetic because they're not about like an existing mathematical object, but instead they're about a function that humans sort of invented. So usually the assumptions here are that a pseudorandom function is secure. So a pseudorandom function it's basically a, uh, you know, a tiny function which takes in a key and has some input space, which is usually small, like maybe 128, 256 bits, something like that. The key is also similar to that size. And basically the, th the idea is that like, if you don't know the key, then you can't distinguish this function from just a random function. That's what up to the random functions to satisfy. 
And usually, well, one thing, one approach would be to to use sort of algebraic assumptions to create this. Uh, the usual approach is that someone defines a function, uh, and they you know claim it's a PRF. And at first, nobody really should believe this claim, but you know, after time, if, if a bunch of people have tried to break it and tried to you know find ways to distinguish it using you know various techniques that have been developed over the years, eventually people start to gain confidence, you know, that it won't be that that the PRF is secure. So you have this small little kernel, the synthetic creation you've made, and you sort of assume it's secure. I say assume, that's more of a theoretical thing, because in practice you, a lot of people are trying to attack this this small PRF assumption trying to find ways to distinguish it from random and even small breakages are treated very seriously. Like if you claim your, your pseudo random function has 120 bits of security and someone finds an attack with 126 bits, you know, complexity that's considered broken and you need to sort of increase the, the complexity of the function. And often, you know, people don't go creating a PRF, you know, from the blue from scratch. Instead, they sort of tweak old designs or use, you know, you know, study techniques for creating these things, or they look at, you know, what are the best attacks against existing systems, and let me try and create a new, a new synthetic function, which is going to be, you know, resistant to those kinds of attacks. But ultimately, with synthetic assumptions, it's much more, it's much more an argument based on, well, a lot of people tried to break this, and nobody succeeded. Which, I mean, if, if you're honest, I mean, that's, that's sort of the case with algebraic assumptions too, but I mean, it's, it's also a case of, well, you know, nobody's figured out an algorithm to factor numbers efficiently yet. And with, with numbers, it's sort of interesting because, you know, figuring out whether or not a factor is inside of a number is easy. <laughs> you can calculate the, the greatest common divisor of numbers very efficiently. So I could, if I know a factor that I might think is inside the number, I can figure that out. But for some reason, it's, it's hard to figure out what factors to look for. What's also interesting is that it's easy to factor polynomials, but for some reason integers are hard. <laughs> uh, so sometimes algebraic assumptions get broken, like with the I I forget exactly the there's this recent isogeny thing. I think it was SIDH, but I might be wrong here. Uh, there's I'm not I'm not well versed on isogeny stuff, but there was basically one assumption which was broken recently. Uh, I probably I probably got the name wrong, but anyhow, it's basically sort of you know algorithmic advances and and elliptic curve stuff which led to the breakage. So sometimes you know algebraic assumptions do get broken. So, and then, as I sort of expanded upon, you use these assumptions to build larger systems. So the idea is that at each point, you reduce the security of a large system to the security of one of these assumptions. And usually you don't do this directly, but you sort of do this through intermediary steps. Like maybe I assume that, you know, given a PRF, I can build a hash function, which is collision resistant. And then I say, oh, you know, given a collision resistant hash function, I can create this encryption scheme. And like, oh, given an encryption scheme and a hash resistant function, I can create this, you know, message protocol. And so it's usually like big tower of reductions to create this big system. And then it all sort of like unfolds and reduces down to the small seed. It's quite, it's quite nice that way. And I think that's sort of what distinguishes cryptography from other kinds of, of security, at least in my, in my view of, of cryptography. This is sort of my opinion and take on things. The big distinguisher is this provable security. I think cryptography is at its best 
when you distill the essence of a system into the properties it needs to satisfy, and then you prove that it's that it can, you know, satisfy these things. You prove that your system is secure, that it reduces to a very minimal assumption in a very clear way, which sort of immediately, you know, removes all of the, you know, fog and complexity you need when reasoning about a real-world system. You have to think about all the possible attack vectors here. There's a very simple proof. You can read the proof. You can follow it. And you can be convinced that the system is secure under this model. And I guess that brings me to something I mentioned earlier in the episode, and which it seems I'll have time to talk about this iteration, which is good, which is why you why there's problems with just modeling security you know how things can go wrong so it'd be nice I, I i've just spent you know 30 seconds you know lauding the merits of cryptography because you have this provable security and everything's great uh unfortunately it doesn't you know cryptography is does get broken and there's this fundamental hardness in modeling systems accurately which which is something you have to deal with. So where do things go wrong? Well, first of all, at, at the bottom layer of the stack, an assumption can be wrong. So we had the recent isogeny stuff where a scheme got broken because it turns out that an algebraic assumption wasn't, wasn't as secure as people thought. So that can happen. That's, that's usually quite rare, especially since, well, people are, are more or less hesitant to accept new assumptions, but in general, people are, some, are, 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 I'd say, somewhat hesitant to, like, sort of accept new assumptions. So if we have a new block safer, which is based on, like, completely new techniques, people are going to be skeptical of that. If you have a, you know, random algebraic assumption, you should be somewhat skeptical of that until people have had time to analyze and attack it and, and see, you know, what, what you can do with it. But then, which means that the remaining assumptions people use are... are, are few and well studied. So the likelihood of like, say, factoring numbers suddenly becoming easy with a classical computer, not a quantum computer, of course, uh, is quite slim. And then the, the next place where a mistake can be is in proving that your big system reduces to an assumption. And I'd say actually, mistakes and proofs happen perhaps more often than they should. Um, often proofs are not are kind of obtuse and have sort of gaps in reasoning that are usually fixable, uh, but you know often proofs are sort of missing you know slight details that usually the reader can reconstruct, but uh, they're sort of not as good as you can make them. So like the ideal, if it were easier, would be to have sort of a machine a machine check proof, and then you would be sure that you know, or at least very very confident that your proof didn't have a mistake. So sometimes your, your proof that your system reduces to a small assumption is is incorrect. But once again, it's, it, that's that's something that does, does happen much more often than assumptions, but I, I still don't think it's like the major headache when it comes to security of cryptography. So another thing which happens, I'd say quite often, is that the implementation does not match the thing you proved about. And this happens you know, pretty often. So I have an implementation which does the wrong thing which leads to a security vulnerability. Sometimes even it's sort of like, well, 
it, sometimes it's it's vulnerable in like a way which isn't even considered in the original security things. Or maybe there's like a buffer overflow or something. So that happened like OpenSSL a few times. Uh, so that can happen too. So you have sort of software that does the wrong thing and leads to you know bad cryptography. Then you also have software that's vulnerable for orthogonal reasons. And so that's actually quite common for you know crypto cryptographic software to have bugs. Uh, one tricky thing with cryptography is that it's sort of either right or it's wrong. Like either you implemented the thing or you didn't. <laughs> and if you didn't, uh, you sort of all bits are off. Often a small change in like which distribution you sample from can can, can very much change the results. And it's yeah. So basically, you you want to make absolutely certain that you're doing the right thing in your implementation, which is why having Precise specifications is important for systems because then it's much easier to, first of all, check that code implements a specific specification. And then even better if you have test vectors or other implementations, so you can sort of cross-check them altogether. But I'd say, you know, as a whole, there's a lot more in terms of formal verification and testing of cryptographic systems we could be doing that we're not. I don't think we're anywhere, you know, close to like the ideal, you know, pipeline from theoretical cryptography to software implementations. But that's sort of, I think, eventually solvable. But there is a fundamental problem, which I think I've hinted at a few times, which is you have to have a threat model and, you know, your games and whatnot, which actually model the real world. And this is a fundamental issue that I don't think will ever, ever be, you know, absolved from, which is the adversary does not, you know, give a damn <laughs> about your threat model. <laughs> you can have a threat model and say, oh, you know, we're not going to pay bug bounties for this thing because it's out of scope. And then someone exploits that thing and, and it breaks your system. So the real world is very messy. There's a lot of ways to attack your system, which are very difficult to model. And there's always going to be, you know, a fundamental mismatch because you can't possibly model, you know, all the things an adversary can do. So you have to sort of limit yourselves to sort of an abstract thing to be able to analyze the system. And there's all there's always going to be some flaws in this reasoning, and it's 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 very hard to like to like tell that your your, your model of security isn't capturing the things it should. It's it's quite difficult to do that. So one example is that of uh, sort of hardware leakages. So one of them I, I like a lot is is timing attacks. So maybe the adversary can observe how long your system takes to do certain computations. To figure out informations about this, uh, the secrets it's processing, and if you look at sort of the game-based analysis of security, you know this thing isn't even considered at all because you know the adversary interacts with this game and they just receive output. So the model that you sort of like need to also give the adversary like the time it takes to compute output or something like that. So if you can you could sort of model you know operations, you could sort of model the information leakage here, but it's quite difficult. And then there's also other forms of information leakage beyond just timing attacks, which are even more difficult to model. Like you can use the electromagnetic magnetic radiation of a processor to get information about the secrets. It's it's well, what, what data it's processing and modeling that in your security game. I mean, it's just impossible. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 like kind of hopeless to try and model that. So there's always going to be mismatches between the real, you know, real world and what uh, what your security game defines. And, you know, people can always come up with very creative ways uh, 
to attack your systems and, and, and new vectors and new sources of information leakage. And then you also have sort of the fundamental problem that it's, it's hard to be sure, especially with complicated systems, that your security model is ca capturing the right things and the right you know attack vectors. With simple constructions like encryption, that's where cryptography is at its most useful, I think, because it's it's very easy to be sure that you're capturing a, a security definition which is strong enough and which encapsulates enough of what the adversary can do. As soon as you start modeling higher-level protocols, it becomes more tricky to get a threat model and a security game which captures everything you need to, to capture. And if you try to model like an entire like you know cloud infrastructure application distributed system with these cryptographic techniques, you'd have so many ways to attack the system that you, you wouldn't be able to model. And yeah, once you get to, once you get to like trying to model the security of an entire distributed system and like you know all of the ways you can authenticate with the system and all the employees and what accesses they have, I mean it's, it just becomes you know absurd. And then you know one one popular uh, kind of attack these days is like phishing. And like trying to model phishing in terms of security game is like it's quite tricky because it's basically uh, humans. Yeah, I mean you basically sort of had to like assume that some people can get you know compromised sometimes, but obviously if you assume that any person can get compromised, it's very difficult to create a secure system because you know at some point some people need to have the ability to do things to the system, <laughs> you know. Somebody needs to set the system up, and if that person happens to be compromised at the point in time for setting up the system, well, yeah. So there's definitely a need for security techniques beyond cryptography. Uh, cryptography, I think, excels when you're proving the security of isolated things, which are simple to understand and have you know simple models of security. Once you get into higher-level applications, it's much more difficult. So I think cryptography is very complementary complementary in this respect, and that. We can sort of create these encapsulated functionalities, which are useful for applications, and prove that they're secure. And I guess uh, I'm starting to ramble a bit, so I think I covered some good ground and, and got a few thoughts out about security and, and what makes uh, cryptography fun. I think I think really that that's the beauty for me in cryptography is the, is the provable security. That's that's I think what what I found to be the one of the most interesting aspects of it, really. And it's it's really quite interesting that you can even have provable security at all if you think about it. It's 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 kind of uh, yeah, it's 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 very intriguing, and it's, it's something I I, I think uh, yeah. I like the crystal analogy. That, that was a, that was a good analogy. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm I'm rambling quite a quite a lot now, so I guess I'll just say. I hope you enjoyed this episode, even if it's perhaps rambly at times. And thanks for listening, and until the next one, goodbye and have a good day.